Mark 1 and verse 21. The evangelist writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and Jesus was teaching. And the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And this man cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And as a big understatement, verse 27, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? You see, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. My word, why don't you join me as we pray, and let's ask God to help me make sense of Jesus' first exorcism. Let's pray. I'm asking, Lord, that you would now come and that you would speak to your people by your word through a most imperfect vessel like me. Would you grip me and all who can hear me with the absolute authority of Jesus? Help us to see it and to submit to it. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus is Lord. He's more than a Savior. He's sovereign. He's more than a Redeemer. He's our ruler. Do you see that Jesus really is more than a gracious God? He is a great God. He's more than merciful. He's mighty. He is more than loving. He is Lord. This is the great confession of all the New Testament. Some 742 times throughout the New Testament, you see it marshaled again and again. This Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is Lord. Jesus said this of himself when upon his ascension he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, signaling his lordship. Virtually every disciple attests that this Jesus was no mere moral man, not a wise leader. He was Lord. You have, of course, Paul say that you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You have Peter at Pentecost tell us that God has made this Jesus Christ both God and Lord. You even have doubting Thomas himself, after doubting Jesus' resurrection, confront him and say, my Lord and my God. Jesus is Lord. You believe it, every disciple has believed it, and one day all of us will believe it, for the scripture is clear that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess this great confession of all the New Testament. Jesus Christ is Lord. But is this Lord your Lord? 
That is a critical question. If he is sovereign over all, it means he's sovereign over you. If he is reigning over all, it means he's reigning over you. If Jesus is Lord of all, he is Lord of you. And so I return to the question, is the Lord your Lord? This is the critical question of the hour underneath our text today. For in Mark 1, beginning in verse 21, Jesus confronts all with his absolute authority. Did you notice that word? It was mentioned twice in our passage. There was one thing that astonished everyone. There was one thing that amazed everyone. And do you want to know what it was? His authority. Did you notice that in verse 22? You see it repeated in verse 27. His authority, exousia. It literally means something that came out of his being. There was a power to him that nobody else seemed to have. There was this right, this authority, this jurisdiction that Jesus seemed to have in every room he entered that no man had. It was an authority he possessed, and it was this very authority that appealed to everybody. Don't you love it when somebody talks to you with authority? You're like, oh, I want to hear what this guy has to say. It was magnetic. It appealed to them. But what is wild is that it was this very authority that both appealed to the masses and repealed the masses. It is what drew them in and pushed them away. For in this little village called Capernaum, where all these people beheld Jesus and his remarkable absolute authority, just a few chapters later, Jesus condemns this very city for their unbelief. Those who saw his authority, saw his wonder-working power, were amazed and astonished by it, Evidently, they were later repelled by it. They did not believe it. Thus, the warning is implicit, and we must hear it this day. If he is Lord at all, my friends, he must be Lord of all. If he is indeed the Lord of all creation, he must be your Lord. And so let that Warning, just roll around in your mind and heart today. Is this Lord your Lord? Do you realize that there is a category in which you can know him, but not really be known by him? That you can claim him, but not really be claimed by him? You can see him, so to speak, but not really believe him? You can marvel at him, but not be mastered by him? Is the Lord your Lord this day? Two things I want to lay upon your heart that I see in this text. And I want that question to be rolling around in your mind and heart for the next half hour or so. Is this Lord presented in this text your Lord? First, mark it down. You need to see him as Lord. See it. I, I just want to take all of us back here and lift him up so that we can, with new eyes of faith, see his absolute authority that Mark so beautifully portrays. It's like he's painting a painting. And in this portrait he paints, it is of one who is peerless, unparalleled in power. 
And we see this power displayed in two ways, in both word and deed. Now, just stop for a second. We don't often see people demonstrate power in word and deed. Typically, it's one or the other. This aspect of Jesus set him apart as unparalleled, unequaled, unrivaled. Have you noticed that oftentimes men who are great in words often tend to fail at deeds? Let's just go to the Bible and consider, for example, Abraham. or Mo Let's think about Moses. Here's a good one. Moses was the mighty giver of God's law. I mean, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and yet he failed in simple, obedient deeds of trusting God's word that he had written down. And he struck the rock, and thus God kept Moses from entering the promised land. Or think of the greatest example, King David, that sweet psalmist of Israel. His words are unmatched in poetic value, and yet this great man after God's own heart so ignominiously fell into adultery with that woman named Bathsheba. Have you noticed that men of great words oftentimes lack great deeds? I just can't look any further, but most preachers, I look at myself, I'm, my calling in life is to try to put into human language the, the divine, to help you see the word and to do so orally. And yet I have watched me time and again preach a sermon and my life not testify to it. I'm watching words like come out of my mouth and thinking, I, my wife is probably sitting here squirming, realizing I don't do that. Men of words, not men of deeds. Conversely, men of deeds often fail at words. Just consider the great Samson. Samson was a man of deeds. He was strong, he was mighty, he did a whole lot, but he had loose lips and he couldn't help talking to that seductress Delilah. And what happened? His whole life fell apart. He ended up dying because he was loose-lipped. And this could actually go all the way downstream to a great current in Christianity today, so-called Christianity, the so-called social gospel movement, which is in essence this belief that Christianity is nothing more than a social justice message full stop. Jesus' goal was not to redeem humanity, but to create a cultural movement to reclaim the good life here on earth. That is great deeds lacking the authority of great piercing words. And Jesus, unlike any other, takes the words and the deeds and he brings them together. And I want you to behold his absolute authority in word and in deed in this text. In word, let's begin there in verse 21. We see Jesus present to us his lordship in word. For it says he comes to this little village called Capernaum. Capernaum is at the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, a most important city. It became really his base camp. This is where he did the majority of his ministry. And it says in Capernaum, he went on the Sabbath day to a synagogue. Now, a synagogue is not in the Old Testament because everybody worshipped at the temple. But once that temple was destroyed, the people of Israel during the exile period and during the post-exile period had to figure out how to worship together. So they started creating little gathering spots, assemblies called synagogues. It literally means coming together. And a synagogue was nothing more than a gathering of 10 or more Jewish men who would come together and they would teach one another. They would learn from the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus entered this particular synagogue. By the way, I've been to this synagogue. Its ruins are there to this day. It's an amazing, beautiful site. 
And at this synagogue, Jesus begins to speak. And notice what verse 22 says. As he spoke, they were astonished. In the Greek, ekpleso. It literally means their minds were blown. As he spoke, they were dumbfounded. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. This was a mixture of awe and trepidation. They couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth. Why? For it says he taught them as one who had authority. Authority. Wherein lied this authority? Why were the folks so astonished? I want to tease out for you what was transpiring in this moment in this synagogue. As Jesus entered that Capernaum synagogue and he began to teach, he did so in a few ways that they had never heard before. He left everybody astonished because of what he preached. He began to preach the very word, not the culture. And the Jewish rabbis of that day were bent on teasing out all the cultural implications of the law to create a better society. And Jesus came and reclaimed that Hebrew Old Testament and he began to proclaim its purpose. And as you well know, the purpose of the Old Testament is not to merely order our lives morally. It is to show our great need for the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. He began to preach that word and it is what he preached that blew their minds. But not only what, it is how he preached. He did so evidently in a passionate, clear way. He was not passive like the rabbis of that day who would have just cited uh, scholar after scholar after scholar. You ever heard a preacher get up? Hopefully not here. I've never heard Clint do this, but you ever heard a preacher just get up and just cite this commentator and this commentator and this commentator and it feels like he's reading to you a, a report he wrote for school? It'll bore you to death. What you want is power and authority. One of the secrets Billy Graham even attested behind his great multi-decade ministry. For he said every time he preached, he did so with passion. And you want to know what, where he saw the most effects? It was when he held up this book and said, The Bible says at that point is when he began to see hearts change. It is when he would appeal to this book that he began to see hearts of men and women change. My friends, Jesus spoke with authority because he had the word. He did so with great passion and clarity. He did so sincerely. He believed what he was saying. And nobody had ever heard somebody preach with such utter sincerity. And I want you to see it wasn't just what he preached. It wasn't just how he preached. It wasn't just why he preached. It was who he was preaching. For Jesus came. The text isn't actually explicit on what he was saying, but we can imply from the rest of Mark that Jesus was preaching himself. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus was opening the eyes of this synagogue to see that he was the one prophesied. My friends, this is why we are a word-centered, Bible-saturated church. The reason this book is held up as it is, week in, week out, is because it alone has perfect authority. I don't, no preacher does. 
Don't come to a church to hear a man. Come to a church to hear the word. If the Lord takes you from Hickory Grove one day, you be sure to find a church where this book is going to be held up and that preacher will say nothing more than thus saith the Lord. This is our perfect authority. I want you to see it is a most powerful authority for this word is one that is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Not my oratory, not any man uh, illustration. This word is powerful because it does the work. Martin Luther, that great reformer, he once remarked that the reason he was so successful changing the hearts and minds of the people of Germany in the 1500s was not because he was a revolutionary. He attested that the word did the work. He believed God when he said through the Apostle Paul, the word of God is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He believed the word when he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not a man's preaching. It is the gospel proclaimed, not the oratory of the man that does the work. So this is why, my friends, we unapologetically, unequivocally, without stammer or stutter, will say this is a Bible-centered, Bible-saturated church. I pray you receive that as a great gift of grace, for it is here where we meet the perfect authority of Christ. We meet the practical authority of Christ. It'll change you. We meet the powerful authority. And we have demonstrated its proven authority. For when this book is proclaimed, it is at that moment that lives are changed. And so I just want to invite you to take a step back with me and inquire of your own soul. Is this authoritative word of Christ authoritative in your life? Do you listen to him speak to you privately? Do you have any personal time quietly with the Lord where you are soaking it in? I wonder, are you listening publicly? Or is your mind elsewhere this hour? Do you listen to his word proclaimed eagerly? Is there an expectation that the Lord is going to speak to you by his word? Or is this the boring part of the service and you're just ready for the music to come back? Do you listen reverently? Is there a desire to hear the God of the universe speak to you? Do you do so submissively? When there is a hard saying, do you receive it with meekness? My friends, have you seen that Jesus is Lord in word? And if you have not, may this second aspect of his wonderful unity of power and authority strike you anew. He is authority, authoritative. He is Lord, both in word and in deed. For notice what transpires beginning in verse 23, a most startling scene. It says, as he was speaking with utmost authority, which by the way, since they were astonished, it means it was probably silent in the synagogue. You could have heard a pin drop. They were amazed at what they were hearing. And as he began to speak, notice what verse 23 says. He says, a man with an unclean spirit cried out. Unclean spirit. It is a way of saying a demon-possessed man. In the Greek, it literally says a man in 
an unclean spirit. It means this spirit pervaded him. It means this spirit had invaded him. It had possessed him fully, such that, as Jesus is proclaiming with utmost authority, and it is silent in the room, all of a sudden a shriek breaks out in this room. Anacrazo, he cries out in agony, and this voice utters through the voice box of a man. And notice what is uttered by this demon. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. What a remarkable thing to spring from the lips of a demon-possessed man. For upon this confession, this demon demonstrated that he knew that this Jesus was no mere man. Jesus of Nazareth. He knew he was a historical individual. Holy one of God. He knew he was no mere man, but he was God in the flesh. He was human and divine. And he knew Jesus' reason for being there when he cried out, Have you come to destroy us? He knew that Jesus' ministry was to come and to judge the prince of the power of the air. To crush the head of the serpent. The demon knew who Jesus was. And so just take a step back with me and consider how stunning it is that in that moment when that demon-possessed man shrieks, Jesus responds... Be silent. Literally, I can't say literally what it means. It means hush up. Be muzzled and come out. And unlike all the shamans of old, all the incantation workers of old, all the wise men, all the sorcerers of old, Jesus did something that the world had never seen. He spoke and the demons fled. Now, what do we do with this? Because we all like verses 21 and 22. Jesus spoke with authority. I like authority. I'm a linear, logical guy. I can hold up this book and say, thus saith the Lord. I'm good with that. But when it gets to verse 23, it seems to defy our 21st century rationalistic sensibilities. What do you do with this exorcism? I mean, what? What do you do with that? I beg that you hear me. That one of the, the significant reasons we see such a fantastic, miraculous ministry of Christ is because it is these very miracles that magnify his mission. It is these very deeds that demonstrate his dominion over everything. It is these very actions, my friends, that authenticated Jesus' authority. I, I want you to see what was happening in this synagogue. Jesus was demonstrating that he was indeed no mere man. For you might be tempted to conclude that had he not worked these fantastic miracles, that he was just a great man, like the prophets of old. There were a lot of great speakers of the Old Testament. You might have suspected that he was just a strong man, like some of the great politicians of old. You might have concluded that he was just a wise man, like some of the great wisdom sages of the ancient days. But this was no mere great man, no mere strong man, no mere wise man. This was the God man, unparalleled, 
peerless, unequaled, unrivaled. He was greater than the greatest. He proved that he could do what no prophet, even John the Baptist, couldn't do. He came and finally fulfilled what all the prophets had only longed for. For as early as Genesis, as early as the first few chapters of the Bible, when it was prophesied that one would come and crush the head of the serpent, it was only Jesus who could have the authority to do this. And he would soon crush Satan under his feet. My friends, he was greater than the greatest. He proved himself stronger than the strongest. He was stronger than the Bible calls the strong man, Satan himself. He defied him in the wilderness and he was defying him in this moment with but a word. Be silent, hush up. And Satan and his minions had to flee at the sound of Jesus' voice. Do you see this? That Jesus really was in a class of his own? He was not like the philosophers of old who just gave us a wisdom to abide by. He was not like the politicians of old who promised to save a people from their mortal enemies. He was not like the prophets of old who just prophesied of wonders to come. He was greater than the greatest. He was stronger than the strongest. He was wiser than the wisest. He was our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. He promised what no wise man could, not the good life, eternal life. He, prom he provided what no politician could, not political freedom. He promised eternal freedom, deliverance, redemption from our sins. He fulfilled what no prophet could. He alone did what only he could do. He crushed Satan under his feet. Do you see him now? As Lord, do you see he's Lord? In word, in deed. Let me bring it to a close. I want to refine my question and ask just you. Do you see that he's your Lord? Yours. For it's one thing to see him, a whole other to believe him. It's one thing to claim him, a whole other thing to be claimed by him. It's one thing to know him, it's another thing to be known by him. It's one thing to marvel at him, it's a whole other thing to be mastered by him. I wonder, did you notice the response of the people in verses 26 and 27 and 28? Did you notice what happens? After this demon uh, is exercised, it convulses the man and he leaves. What did the people do? Verse 27 says they had this emotional response. It says they were amazed. It means they were dumbfounded. They were alarmed. They were struck with fear. They were disturbed at what they saw. They had an emotional response. It even suggests that they had an intellectual response to this. They were not only emotionally moved by this scene, it says they recognized, what is this? This is a new teaching. This guy is teaching something with authority that we've never seen or heard before. These people recognize there's something new here. They had an emotional response. They had an intellectual response. But evidently, implicitly, there was one thing lacking that I want to conclude and drive home to your heart this Lord's Day. The text implies that though moved emotionally, moved intellectually, there was one thing that was evidently unmoved. It wasn't their emotions. It wasn't their mind. 
But what was left unmoved was their will. For Jesus, just a few chapters later, proclaims that Capernaum is condemned. Woe to you, O Capernaum, he says in Matthew 11 and verse 23. For, he says, it will be better on that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. If only Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the wonders that you have seen, they would still be here today, Jesus says. Those are weighty words for a group that was moved emotionally and mentally. And that should remind us that when Jesus claims to be Lord, his claim is total. If he is your Lord, he must be Lord over your mind. He is Lord over your mind. Do you see? That's why we actually teach the Bible. We don't just try to emotionally manipulate you. We actually open the book and read it day in, day out, week in, week out, because there's truth. Christianity makes a truth claim. It is an exclusive truth. You need to see the new teaching, so to speak. Jesus' gospel is a message. His is a faith that engages the mind. And so I want to plead with you, dear church, you must make it your life's aim to fill your mind with truth, to have your mind be renewed by the word. Avail yourself to this. Go to this book daily. Hear it proclaimed faithfully. Oh, would you fill your mind with truth? For an intellectually uh, absent faith is no faith at all. God is renewing your mind. He is Lord of your mind. He is also Lord of your emotions. There is an emotional response we see in this text. They were amazed and we ought to be equally amazed, both with awe, wonder, and fear. Isaiah tells us, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Do you tremble this hour at his word? We ought to respond with an appropriate emotional response. But if you think that the certification of your faith in Jesus is how you feel in the moment, oh, remember the great warning of Scripture. James tells us what Mark demonstrates. That even the demons believe, they intellectually know who he is, and they emotionally shudder at him. We saw this. So why aren't demons saved? And why am I suggesting that an emotional and intellectual response is insufficient? Because in conclusion, dear church, Jesus is Lord, your Lord, of your mind, of your emotions, and of your will. For there is no biblical category for a Christian that knows a lot about God and feels all the feels in worship and has not turned from their sins. The Bible uses a word, repentance, a change of your will. The call of the Lord this day is to see His Lordship and to submit to His Lordship. And the way we are called to submit is to turn from our sins and to believe Him. Oh, my friends, this day, this hour, you who have seen His Lordship anew, I pray you hear me. Is this Lord 
your Lord? And if you can confess that is not true, the cry and call of Christ this hour is that you would turn from your sins, that you would have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will, that you would stand astonished, that you would stand amazed, that you would intellectually see the new teaching, but that you would go a step further, and unlike the people of Capernaum, you would cry out, forgive me for my sins. I turn from this. I run to you, Lord Jesus, this day. Would you repent of your sins and belief? Before the great many masses that I trust have heard the precious gospel of Jesus' total claim on our lives. You know His absolute authority. You know His Lordship. You know that Jesus is Lord. Let the warning remain. If He is Lord at all, He must be Lord of all. Won't you join me as we pray? And I want that to just roll around in your heart as we respond in song. Is He Lord of all? Is His total claim on your life there? You've seen His absolute authority in word. You've seen it indeed. You know his claim on your mind, your emotions, your will. Which is why we must respond to his mighty word proclaimed yet again with a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will. As I pray, my invitation to you, indeed the Lord's invitation to you, is that you respond, not your spouse, not your child, not the friend down the row, you. We must all respond this day. For some of you, it means you must come and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, would you guide me to see that my will must be changed. This hour as we sing, I invite you to come. There will be pastors down here, and they are here to pray with you. You come. But for the great many of you who know His Lordship, the call is equal to you this day to respond. Perhaps you'll want to come down here and pray. It is a symbolic act that you must live a life of repentance, that His Lordship has not demonstrated its claim over every aspect of your life. You come as we sing and cry out, Father in heaven, by the power of your Spirit, move in this room. My words cannot affect this one bit. I need the Spirit. I need you, Lord Jesus, to move. And so would you stir in my heart and all who can hear me. Stir anew an overwhelming sense that if you are indeed Lord at all, you must be Lord of all. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen. Would you stand?